Let's open our Bibles this evening to the book of 2 Samuel, as last time we were together, we finished uh, 1 Samuel. Now, of course, uh, we always wonder, well, why is there, you know, two Samuels? Why isn't it just Samuel? Well, it, it seems that probably what had happened was is that in its original form in the Hebrew, that it was just on one great big scroll. And then uh, several years before the birth of Christ, the Jewish leaders uh, desired that they would um, bring the Old Testament as written in Hebrew uh, into the Greek language. Everybody was speaking Greek at that time. Israel was one of those few nations where they were literate uh, top to the bottom. In, in so many cultures, it was only the higher class individuals that would have an education to be able to read. But in Israel, because there was such a, an importance placed upon the reading of God's word, of God's law, uh, that uh, everybody in Israel uh, read. And so they had a desire, let's, let's now bring this Old Testament uh, into ev everyday language. And so when it was written in Greek, it ended up being on too big of a scroll, and so they, they, had, they had what they called Samuel A and Samuel B. Now, eventually, as the English language came along and we brought the Old Testament into English, uh, we decided we'd just make it into First and Second Samuel. Now, there is a, a very natural break, though. You remember the last time we were together, chapter 31 described... Uh, the death of Saul and a number of his sons. And now as we get into uh, chapter 1 of Second Samuel, uh, we begin to now see the, the new king David uh, beginning now to ascend to the throne. Saul was the failed king. Uh, Saul was the king that led Israel uh, into despair, and his life ends in defeat. Th this man represents uh, a wasted life. It represents a life that came on the scene with just so much promise and oh, what God desired to do in the man's life. But at the end of the day, this was a man that refused to be governed by God. And not being governed by God, it caused him to live this life uh, that just ended up being totally different than what the Lord wanted his life to be. Now, as I say, now David, I say David begins now to, to ascend to the throne. This is not an immediate ascending to the throne. In fact, the first four chapters of 2 Samuel is describing essentially a civil war that is taking place. There is yet one son of Saul that remains, and we'll get to it next week, Abner, the general of Saul's army, decides, no doubt because of his anger towards David. David, you remember, had humiliated him, had embarrassed him, and so he desires to prop up this idiot son of Saul. So there's going to be a number of years where David is going to be king only over one tribe, the tribe of Judah. And there's going to be great war. We're going to fight. This is going to be very barbaric. This is going to read like a soap opera. I can't help but think that Hollywood continues to miss just such a great opportunity if they would just make a movie and, and keep it to the script as we read the Word of God. I mean, there's intrigue, there's heroes, there's villains. I mean, there's everything you're going to want in a movie uh, right here. And unfortunately for Israel, it was their uh, true history. Now, the, the theme of 2 Samuel is restoration. 
Now we talk about that when you read the Bible, that one of the things that you want to be looking for is repetition. Are there phrases that are being repeated? Are there words that are being repeated? If you're, if you're reading a passage of scripture and you see that there's something that's being spoken over and over again, well, maybe there's something there that God wants you to know. Maybe there's something that God is trying to highlight. I don't think that it's any mystery what God is trying to highlight as we begin 2 Samuel. In verse four, we read, the people are fallen. In verse 10, after he had fallen, verse 12, because they had fallen, verse 19, how the mighty have fallen, verse 25, how the mighty have fallen, verse 27, how the mighty have fallen. And so what we find is a nation that is in a fallen state. The first king was corrupt. Now, we go back 40 years earlier, we have a corrupt priesthood. And God fixed that because he allowed the priest and all of his sons to die in one day. Samuel comes on the scene and takes over. Now, what we had last time we were together is you've got King Saul and his sons, they die in one day. And now God is going to bring a king that has a fear of God and a desire and a passion for God. And that king sitting on the throne, being a God-honoring man, is going to cause the nation to begin to honor God as well. And so oftentimes in Scripture, you see that the Lord allows things in a person's life, church's life, a nation's life, to become so dark and so hopeless that it becomes obvious to anyone that wants to pay attention that only God is going to be able to bring this man back from the brink or this church back from the brink, or this nation back from the brink. And so what we are seeing in 2 Samuel is God, he's developed the man, and now he's gonna put the man in that position, and he's gonna use that man to bring an entire nation uh, back to him. So it's a fascinating story. So we begin in verse one. Then now it came to pass, after the death of Saul... When David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had stayed two days in Ziklag, and on the third day, behold, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. That can't, that can't be good news, can it? And so it was, when he came to David, that he fell on the ground and prostrated him uh, so, now we're going to be told in verse 9 uh, that this guy that comes here is an Amalekite. And uh, this guy, uh, you talk about misreading a room, uh, this guy is certainly not reading the room uh, correctly. Now, what we have here is we've got two stories that are running parallel. Now, you remember that as we brought First Samuel to a close, that you've got King Saul and the armies of Israel up on Mount Gilboa. You remember that David was forced by one of the Philistine kings to go with them to that military staging area where they were preparing this invasion of Israel. And the assumption was, is that David, you're going to go with us. And David, because of his lies, because of his compromise, David had painted himself into a corner. This is not the optics that you're looking for if you're going to be Israel's next king to be fighting for the Philistine army. But you remember that God graciously got him out of that. 
He walked two days, you're talking about somewhere between 80 and 100 miles between Ziklag and Mount Gilboa. So he walked for a couple of days, and when they finally, on the third day, arrived at Ziklag, they had discovered that the Amalekites had invaded, taken all of their families, all of their wealth, and so David then sets out to track these guys down. This is what we had in 1 Samuel chapter 30. He tracks them all down, recovers all of the things. God said they would recover all. And now he's been back at Ziklag for two days, and now it's the third day. Right? So what we have to understand, there's a, a real compression here that's, that's going on, that these two stories are happening at the same time. The last time David knew is that, well, the Philistines are getting ready to invade. Did they invade? If they invaded, how did the war go? I mean, he can't turn on the radio. He can't, you know, get online and look at some, you know, web news site. So here you are a hundred miles away in the ancient world. What in the world has gone on? What is, what's taken place up there? And so now you see this guy showing up in your camp dirt all over. He looks like a mess. His clothes are, are all torn, and he just falls down in front of David. And David is no doubt thinking to himself, this isn't good at uh, all here. And uh, now he's going to, he, he goes and he tells this story about how he just, he happened upon King Saul. Now his story is, is that King Saul uh, was severely wounded and wasn't dead and he begged me that I would wipe him out. And so I wiped him out. Now he's got some artifacts with him. He's got the armband of Saul. He's got some other things to just proof that he knows what he's talking about, evidence to back up uh, his story. Now, he is, he is believing uh, that um, he's bringing good news, right? Because Saul was... You know, the nemesis of David, Saul was the guy that was standing in front of David, keeping David from, from the throne. And so he believes, I'm going to go, I'm going to tell this story, and no doubt he's going to somehow advance me in his army, and I'm, I got this bit of information, and uh, I'm going to use it now uh, to my uh, advantage. Now, if he did kill Saul... Because we're told in verse 8 he's an Amalekite, it would seem like a fit ending for Saul. Because you remember, it was Saul's disobedience concerning the Amalekites that caused the Lord to say, hey, you're no longer going to be king. So it would seem very poetic that an Amalekite would take out his life. But it does appear that he's telling this story. We're going to see David knows, David knows he's being played. David can read this guy. I mean, one of the things about liars which David was, is that you're usually pretty good at spotting another liar. And uh, so he's, he knows what's going on. This guy is playing me. This guy is trying to get into my good graces. He's looking for advancement here. I really don't like this guy uh, at all. Now notice David's reaction in verse 11. Therefore David took a hold of his own clothes and he tore them. And so did all of the men that were with him. Now, you understand that in that era, clothes were very expensive. Uh, you, you would not have had very many changes of clothing. You and I, I mean, clothes are so cheap. I mean, you go to the clearance rack in some department store, and, you know, you can get shirts for just a couple of bucks, right? And uh, so if we tear our shirt, 
You know, it's like, well, whatever, I've got a torn shirt. I can get another one for just a few bucks. And uh, in the ancient world, though, I mean, to rip your shirt too, and then to purposely rip your shirt. Again, picture, you know, Nacho Libre ripping his blouse here. You would, you would know that that person was angry. They're upset. They're, there's emotional trauma going on with them. And so David and all of his men, they're ripping their shirts. And I would imagine at this point that the Amalekite is probably thinking, uh-oh. I mean, this is not... The reaction I thought I was going to get um, from David and notice that they, they mourned and they wept and they fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen uh, by the sword. Now this really, uh, this shows us what was going on in David's heart. Now again, we, we read our Bibles in such a way that we don't quite comprehend the chronology of all of this. We just, you know, we just read, we just go from one chapter to another, and we just think in our mind, man, stuff's really going on. I mean, this happened, this happened, this happened. And we don't take time to consider that sometimes in between these chapters and sometimes in between some of these stories, you've got long uh, periods of time. You've got large gaps uh, of time. David was anointed king about 20 years ago. And since the day that he was anointed king, I mean, his whole world has been turned upside down. He is an enemy of the state. He's being chased from one end of the nation to another. He's running for his life. He's lost every, he's got to send his family into exile uh, in order that they not be killed or used as some kind of a bargaining chip to get him back into town so that Saul could, could kill him. So here he is now. The guy that's responsible for all that, the guy that's responsible for 20 years of heartache and hell, you're now being told is dead. I mean, this is one of those ding-dong, the wicked witch is dead. I mean, it's time to throw a party. It's time to celebrate. But that is not how David sees this story at all. Imagine you're being chased by some evil guy. Your life is being destroyed by some evil man. And now here you are on the precipice of just stepping in to your dream life. Stepping in, you're going to be king. You're going to be, you're going to be in charge of everything. I mean, I'm sure that there would be sugar plums dancing in our head if that were the case. But notice not so with David as he begins to, to weep and, and to mourn. And, and David recognized that that whole time that God was dealing with him in that situation, that was his, that was his Bible college. That was his leadership training program. And I'm telling you, you you can look at the circumstances of your life. There's a manipulator, there's a liar, there's an abuser, there's some kind of an evil force that is at work in your life, and you're just crying out to God, God, how long until you're going to remove this, and how long until you're going to make it right, and you're just crying out to the Lord. Understand that in those lonely, dark nights, and in those times where it just seems that there is no deliverance coming, those are seasons of growth. 
Those are seasons where God is teaching and God is instructing. And he's able to show you lessons that you would not have otherwise learned. And so David looks back and he sees it was my training ground and God was preparing me for this. And so notice David said unto him, how is it? that you are not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed. Now again, if this were a movie, this is where the very ominous music would come in and being played. And then David called for one of his young men. I just like this job. And uh, he said, now, you go near. Kill that guy. Get rid of that guy for me. And then he struck him, and he died. And so David, he had said to him, he said, your blood is on your own hand. For your own mouth has testified against you, saying that I have killed uh, the Lord's anointed. Now, again, we're always looking for repetition. Is there something that's being repeated? And notice the repetition that we have here of that phrase, the Lord's anointed. In fact, Thomas Constable tells us that all 11 references to the Lord's anointed in the Old Testament, except for the one of Lamentations 4.20, appear in First and Second Samuel. Isn't it interesting? It really only appears in these two books. And this phrase emphasizes the close relationship between Yahweh uh, and, and the king. And so God, was, God had appointed these men. It was God's will that they would be where they were at. And it was the Lord who put them there. And so it was supposed to be the Lord that would remove them. And so David, you remember, so very hesitant. He's not going to take justice into his own hands. He's not going to be the instrument of God's judgment uh, for his anointed. And so David said, man, you just treated God's anointed uh, just with such a flippant attitude. You didn't understand how serious of a, of a crime that it is to mess with God's anointed. Now, ask yourself this, who is God's anointed today? You are. You, the followers of Christ, you are the Lord's anointed. What do we read in 1 John chapter 2? But you have an anointing from the Holy One. You have been set apart, specially gifted and prepared by the Holy Spirit. And all of you know the truth because he teaches us and he guards us from error. You have been anointed, not with oil. You have been anointed with the Holy Spirit, you are the anointed one. That brother or that sister sitting next to you this evening is anointed of God. And yet, isn't it fascinating how we will sit down with a cup of coffee with another person and we will rip and tear the Lord's anointed. Over a cup of coffee, we will kill a reputation. Over a cup of coffee, a cup of tea with your friend, you'll just obliterate another Christian. And we have to understand it is a serious offense. They belong to the Lord. What are you doing tearing into them? What are you doing putting them down? What are you doing belittling them? They belong to God. They're God's property. 
You better watch what you do with God's property. How are we to minister to one another? How are we to relate to one another? I love Romans chapter 12, verse 10. The Amplified reads this way. Be devoted to one another with authentic brotherly affection as members of one family, giving preference to one another in honor. Holman Christian Standard puts it this way. Show family affection to one another with brotherly love. Outdo, I love that, outdo one another in showing honor. No, you go. No, no, I insist you go. No, you go. No, you go. I mean, none of us should be able to leave this place because we're trying to get somebody else out that door uh, before us. That's how we are to treat one another. We are members of God's family. We should be excited when we see each other. We should be excited about listening to one another. What is our father doing? And let me tell you what the father has done for me this week. No, no, I want to tell you what the father has done for me. And, and it should be this family feel, not where we gather together. Do you, do you see what she was wearing? Did you see what that guy, you know, did? And, and just ripping each other. That should not be among the family of God. Now, David, of course, David knew that he was being played. We'll get to it here in a couple of weeks in chapter four, when David said, when someone told me saying, look, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good news, I arrested him, had him executed in Ziklag, the one who thought I would give him a reward for his news. So David knew he was being played. This guy is, is just, you know, uh, trying to use me. And uh, so this guy paid uh, certainly dearly uh, for his life. Then notice in verse 17, then David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan, his son, uh, for he told them now to teach the children of Judah this song, the song of the bow. Indeed, it is written in the book of Jasser. Now notice he writes a song, and notice we're given the title of the song, uh, the song of the bow. Uh, again, another great Bible trivia question. What was the name of the song that David wrote in honor of Saul and Jonathan? Probably not very many people would come, come up with them. Now, it is thought that he calls it the song of the bow because it appears that the bow was the favorite weapon of Jonathan. You remember we, we had it earlier in 1 Samuel where uh, you know, they were trying to be kind of you know, undercover and you remember Jonathan said, okay, I'm gonna come out with my bow and I'm gonna shoot the arrows and if I shoot them this way, it means one thing. If I shoot the arrows that way, that way another way, it, it means uh, something else. And uh, so this is, a, this is a song that he's writing about uh, Saul and, and Jonathan uh, and, and in fact, he, he, he treats it uh, as such an important thing that he wants all of Israel uh, to learn this. Make sure that everybody in the nation, that they are uh, taught this song. Now, you and I, by nature, we love to gloat, don't we? I mean, don't we just love it uh, when we've won the argument? Uh, don't we just love it when we have won the day and we can impress everybody with our, our great victory? But when we gloat, I'm telling you, it does something to us. 
It, it creates something in our heart that is not good, and we are not being imitators of our God. Our Father does not gloat. What does he tell us in Ezekiel 33? He says, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked would turn from the way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? The Lord begs that men and women and boys and girls would turn. He does not gloat in his victory. And David is giving us an example of that. His nemesis is dead. There is a pathway now to the throne. But that's not what David is concerned about. David is is sincerely saddened by the fact uh, that Saul and Jonathan are dead. Now let's, let's notice how he refers to them in verse 19. He says, the beauty of Israel is slain on your high places. You remember they were killed on the side of Gilboa. And how the mighty have fallen. Isn't it, isn't it interesting that, that he refers now uh, to Saul here as the beauty? We don't, you know, we don't, we don't really see a great deal of beauty in Saul. I mean, as you're, as you're going through 1 Samuel, I mean, he's a jerk here, he's a jerk there, he's a jerk here, he's a jerk there. I mean, everywhere you look, the guy is being a jerk. But now we have David. He's remembering him. He's writing a, writing a funeral song for them, if you will. And he starts out by saying, this guy, he was the beauty. Now, this is the guy that ruined his life. This is a guy that, that tried several times to kill him, personally kill him. And then he sends his army out. I mean, if there was somebody ruining your life and they've actually tried to kill you on numerous occasions... And now you're called to speak at their funeral. Would you call them a beautiful person, right? Now, if you were able to call them a beautiful person, well, we would all then know that the Spirit of God is doing a deep work in your life. When you see another believer who walks in forgiveness, who walks in, in gentleness towards those who have offended, those who have taken advantage, those who have manipulated and abused and so forth. When you see a person respond to them, like Christ on the cross, forgive them, Father, they don't know what they're doing. When you see a person respond that way, you are watching the Holy Spirit controlling the life of a human being. And this is the life that God calls us to. What does Jesus tell us on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5? You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I say unto you, love your enemies, pray for those that persecute you in order that you may be the sons, the children of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son, who is his son, to rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love, now this is a great question. If you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax gatherers do the same? That's a great question to ask yourself. What am I doing that Joe Unbeliever wouldn't do? Right? What, what do I have going on in my life 
that the unbelieving heathen down the street doesn't have going on in his life. What is there that sets us apart? What is there that makes us different? And Jesus is telling us that what will make us different is when we walk in the love of the Father and we are putting the love of the Father on display. No doubt there is no greater move of the Spirit than you and I being supernaturally enabled to love those who have knifed us uh, in the back, right? Much more spiritual than tongues, much more spiritual than healing, much more spiritual than prophesying. You see a person who is genuinely loving somebody that has done them harm, and you are witnessing the Holy Spirit of God on display in their life. And this is what we now see in David as he is sincerely uh, weeping over the loss of Saul, this very uh, evil man, and of course Jonathan, uh, his, his son. He then, he then goes on, he curses Gilboa, he extols their bravery, he calls for all of Israel uh, to weep, and then we close with verse 26 where he then says this, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. Now, David, David lost a, gr- a great friend. I, I think it's probably safe to say David lost his best friend. It's fascinating to me. Nobody comes into David's life uh, to take this role. And... Um, it probably is, um, is a thing that brought harm into David's life. Uh, I think that, that every man, every man needs uh, somebody who is deputized uh, to speak truth into the man's life. Uh, you show me a man that isolates himself uh, from anybody else being able to approach and to rebuke and to correct and so forth. I'll show you a man that is in a very dangerous spiritual place in his life. On the other hand, you show me a man that has a relationship with another man where both men understand if you see something creepy in my life, you can point it out. And if I see something creepy in your life, I'm going to point it out. Those are two men that understand the the danger for the Christian in this world that we live in. I'm sure that if Jonathan or somebody like Jonathan had come into David's life, I'm sure the whole deal with Bathsheba and some of the other nonsense that David got into probably would not have happened because he would have had uh, an accountability partner, if, if, if you want to use that language. Now, notice that, that he tells us here that, that you, have, you have been so very pleasant. And again, Jonathan was a giving guy. Uh, how was Jonathan pleasant? Well, in chapter 18, Jonathan honored David above, above himself. He said, look, I, I, I know you're going to be king. You're going to be king, right? And, and, and look, I, yeah, it, it's really, I, I should be king because my dad is king, but yet I know that's not going to happen. You're going to be king. In chapter 19, he interceded for David. Dad, what are you doing? Dad, you're acting like a whack job here. Come on, David. David is not a, a bad guy. And then, of course, uh, he, he related, he was so faithful no matter what, what the cost was. Even, even, even his, his dad, Saul said, goodness sakes, boy, don't you know as long as David is alive, that's a threat to, to you ascending to the throne? Yeah, he knew that. 
And he knew that God had given that throne to another. And yeah, I, I could fight for something that I would really like to have, but I'm not going to do it because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see to it uh, that, that it goes to uh, this guy. I like Leslie Grant. He said, he said he completes his lamentation with the painful words, how are the mighty fallen and the weapons of war perished. This is the expression of the sad end of the best that man in the flesh can offer. His greatness is brought down to nothing and his ability for conquest totally destroyed. Only Christ will remain. He alone will have the honor of subduing all things under him. And thank God that day is coming. And we read about it in Revelation chapter 11. Then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Messiah. And he shall reign forever and ever. And that is a day that I hope all of us are praying for, praying that that day would hasten, that this garbage will be dealt with. But in the meantime, as we find ourselves walking in this garbage, what has God called us to do? Love those who persecute you. Do good unto those who hate you. Pray, pray for them. Bless them. Because in that hour where God is giving you the opportunity to bless a hater, that is putting the work of the Spirit on display. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, if we'll submit to that, great will be our reward. So let's pray that God would give us the grace to live such a life. And Father, we ask that... um, as we leave here tonight, that we would be mindful to know what your will is as we relate to each other. You call us, you command us, it is imperative that we love one another. It is imperative, and you've called us to even love our enemies. And Father, we find it very easy to love ourselves, but quite difficult to love others. And so we give you our hearts We pray that your Holy Spirit will continue to convict, continue to strengthen. Give us an appreciation for your work that we see going on in the lives of others. Give us your grace that we would give each other a break. Give us your grace that we would deal with each other graciously. Father, remind us frequently that we don't have it all together. Remind us frequently that we are not perfect in and of ourselves. So, Father, help us to deal kindly as you have dealt so kindly with us. Oh, Father, may this congregation love one another. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.